Welcome to the Site of the Crime, your weekly Florida and federal criminal case law update podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky of Short Scene Lesnetsky and Guy. And each week, I'm going to release one episode reviewing the previous week's Florida DCA and Florida Supreme Court decisions, and one episode reviewing the previous week's 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and U.S. Supreme Court decisions. So whether you're on your way to court, taking a jog, or otherwise have some time to spare, join me each week to get your dose of the latest criminal case opinions. All right, welcome back to the site of the crime. This is our Florida criminal case law update for the week of October 17th through the 21st of 2022. And Today we have uh, seven cases to talk about that were released last week, Uh, none out of the Florida Supreme Court. We had four from the first DCA, and then one from the second, one from the third, and one from the fifth. No cases out of the fourth. And the first case we're going to talk about today is Baker v. State. This is a Florida first DCA case that was released October 18, 2022. And Baker is a second-degree murder post-conviction relief case. Mr. Baker was convicted of the second-degree murder of his girlfriend's two-year-old child. Mr. Baker was sentenced to life, and his case was affirmed on appeal. On this appeal, Mr. Baker argued that his appellate counsel was ineffective for failing to file a 3.800 subsection B2 motion to correct a sentencing error because he believed that his life sentence exceeded the 30-year maximum sentence for a first-degree felony. However, the first DCA found that this argument was meritless because he was found guilty of second-degree murder, where the statutory maximum is life in prison. Mr. Baker also argued that appellate counsel was ineffective for failing to argue fundamental error when the trial court instructed the jury that the state did not have to prove that Mr. Baker intended to cause a child's death. The first DCA found this argument to be meritless as well, because the state does not have to prove that the defendant acted with a specific intent to cause the victim's death, but merely that he committed a dangerous act without regard for the victim's well-being that resulted in the victim's death. Mr. Baker also argued that the trial court committed fundamental error by instructing the jury on the lesser-included offense of aggravated manslaughter of a child, because the state did not allege the specific age of the victim in the information. However, the first DCA rejected this argument because the state did allege that the victim was under the age of 18 in the information, and that was all that was required. Case affirmed. Our second case today is Ford v. State. This is a Florida First DCA case that was released October 19, 2022. And Ford is a duress and admission of evidence of gang affiliation case out of Duval County. Mr. Ford and two co-defendants drove to a trap house to sell rims to the victim in exchange for $250 and 7 grams of cocaine. Mr. Ford confronted the victim about money he owed. Mr. Ford gave a signal and Mr. Ford and his co-defendant drew their guns and demanded money from the two victims. Mr. Ford told his co-defendant to shoot one victim, which he did, and Mr. Ford then shot the same victim several times while he was still alive, but who subsequently died of his wounds. 
Another victim ran, and Mr. Ford told the co-defendant to shoot him as well, and the co-defendant shot the other victim, and that victim survived. During the trial, the co-defendant testified, and a jail informant also testified. The jail informant wore a wire when talking to Mr. Ford, who stated on the recording that he and his co-defendant had gone to the trap house to rob the victims for drugs, and Mr. Ford had to kill the victims because the co-defendant used his real name. Mr. Ford testified, and he said that it was the co-defendant who did all of the shooting, with no warning to Mr. Ford, and that the co-defendant was waving the gun around and demanding that Mr. Ford go get drugs that the victim had. Mr. Ford requested a jury instruction on the defense of duress, but the trial court denied the request. The state argued felony murder, and Mr. Ford apparently thought that if he was not guilty of the underlying felony robbery charge because of duress, he would not be guilty of the first-degree murder charge. There are six elements of a duress defense. First, the defendant reasonably believed that a danger or emergency existed that he did not intentionally cause. Second, the danger or emergency threatened significant harm to himself or a third person. Third, the threatened harm must have been real, imminent, and impending. Fourth, the defendant had no reasonable means to avoid the danger or emergency except by committing the crime. Fifth, the crime must have been committed out of duress to avoid the danger or emergency. And sixth, the harm, of the, uh, the, harm the defendant avoided outweighs the harm caused by committing the crime. On appeal, the first DCA found that the trial court did not err by refusing to give the duress instruction because there was no evidence supporting it. The district court noted that the evidence showed that Mr. Ford planned to commit the robbery prior to arriving, made admissions to his involvement on the wire, and based on the co-defendant's testimony and his own statements, there was no danger or emergency in impending Mr. Ford or impelling Mr. Ford to commit the robbery. The court next addressed Mr. Ford's contention that the trial court erred in admitting testimony regarding his affiliation with the Pakistan Yuli Click or PYC. However, Mr. Ford failed to lodge a specific objection at the trial court level, so the error was not preserved. Trial counsel did object, but failed to state a specific legal basis, namely that the probative value was outweighed by the risk of unfair prejudice. But the court did go on to state that even if the objection was properly preserved, it would still not have been reversible error because Mr. Ford's attorney opened the door by asking state witnesses about their affiliation with the PYC gang, and the state only brought out Mr. Ford's affiliation in response. Also, in light of the overwhelming evidence, the testimony of Mr. Ford's gang membership could not have been prejudicial. Mr. Ford lastly argues that his trial counsel was ineffective for failing to object to the admission of the portion of wire recordings where Mr. Ford talked about his involvement in other unrelated offenses. An ineffective assistance of counsel claim may be raised on direct appeal only in the context of a fundamental error argument. In a direct appeal, the district court will review the record to determine whether the trial court erred, not counsel. So in this context, the district court must determine whether 
uh, counsel's alleged failure to object or otherwise act was so egregious that the trial court should have intervened even without a prompting of an objection. Here, the first DCA held that there was no fundamental error in the trial court's failure to step in on its own to exclude the evidence of other wrongs. So case affirmed. Our third case today is Scott v. State. This is a Florida First DCA case that was released October 19th of 2022. And Scott is a lack of remorse at sentencing case out of Escambia County. Mr. Scott was convicted of child abuse and unlawful use of a two-way communication device to facilitate a felony. The First DCA laid out in great detail the facts of the child abuse, which the trial court described as torture. On appeal, the sole issue was whether the trial court erred by considering lack of remorse during sentencing. Because Mr. Scott did not object at the trial court level, the first DCA reviewed the issue for fundamental error only. The district court noted that the trial court twice during the sentencing stated that Mr. Scott showed a failure to take responsibility for what the objective evidence established he had done. The Florida Supreme Court held in Davis v. State that the trial court is entitled to consider a defendant's failure to accept responsibility or express remorse once the defendant voluntarily allocutes at sentencing. So case affirmed. Our fourth case today is Young Young Blood v. State. And this is a Florida First DCA case that was released October 19, 2022. Youngblood is a Williams Rule case out of Bradford County. Mr. Youngblood was convicted of sexual battery of a child under 12 by a person 18 years of age or older, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The child in this case was 6 years old. At a pretrial hearing on the admissibility of Williams Rule evidence, Witnesses testified that when they were between the ages of 6 and 8 years old, Mr. Youngblood sexually abused them, much like the charged sexual battery offense. The McLean factors, including the location where the act occurred, the age and gender of the victims, and the manner in which the acts were committed, were all similar in this case. Also, the Williams Rule evidence did not become a central feature at the trial because the prior bad act testimony was short, The state only briefly mentioned it in opening statements and closing statements, and the jury was repeatedly instructed as to the proper use of the collateral crimes evidence. So case affirmed. Our fifth case today is Suzuk v. State. This is a Florida 2nd DCA case that was released October 21st, 2022. And Suzuk is a 3.850 ineffective assistance of counsel case out of Charlotte County. Ms. Suzuk was on probation when a probation officer and nine police officers searched her house. The officers didn't have a warrant. There was no condition in her probation order authorizing warrantless searches of her residence. And the state conceded that there was no reasonable suspicion that Ms. Suzuk had violated the conditions of her probation or committed a new offense. Her trial counsel didn't file a motion to suppress the evidence, so a trafficking amount of controlled substances was admitted at trial. 
Ms. Suzik was convicted, and her conviction was affirmed on appeal. So she filed a 3.850 motion claiming her trial counsel was ineffective for not filing a motion to suppress. The trial court found that the trial counsel was deficient in his performance, which is the first prong of Strickland, but found that Ms. Suzik was not prejudiced by that deficient performance, which is the second prong. So the trial court denied the motion, and Ms. Suzik appealed to the second DCA. The United States Supreme Court held in United States v. Knights that a warrantless search of a probationer's home supported by reasonable suspicion and authorized by a condition of probation is reasonable within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. The Florida Supreme Court held in Grubbs v. State that a warrantless search of a probationer's residence by law enforcement officers rather than a probation supervisor is not permissible under the search and seizure provisions of the Florida or United States Constitution in the absence of one of the traditional exceptions to the warrant requirement. Here, the second DCA noted in a footnote that none of the cases address a warrantless search by law enforcement officers without reasonable suspicion and where the probation order does not include a provision authorizing warrantless searches, as was the case here. But the second DCA didn't have to address it either, because it agreed with the trial court that Ms. Suzik failed to meet the second Strickland prong of prejudice. Therefore, it didn't have to address the first prong, whether the trial court's performance was deficient. The second DCA found that because three co-defendants testified against Ms. Suzik, and because Ms. Suzik herself testified that she received oxycodone in exchange for finding a pharmacy that would fill fraudulent prescriptions, this testimony alone supported the conviction without consideration of the evidence obtained in the warrantless search. So case affirmed. Our sixth case today is Ruiz v. State. This is a Florida 3rd DCA case that was released October 19th, 2022. And Ruiz is a sexual predator designation case out of Miami-Dade County. Mr. Ruiz was charged with lewd and lascivious molestation of a child less than 12 years of age by a defendant 18 years of age or older, which is a first-degree felony. Mr. Ruiz pled guilty in 2002 He received a withhold of adjudication and was placed on probation to receive sex offender treatment. The plea agreement made no mention of a sex predator designation. 20 years later, in 2022, the state filed a motion to to declare Mr. Ruiz a sexual predator pursuant to Florida Statute 775.21. The state contended that Mr. Ruiz qualified as a sexual predator, and an order is statutorily mandated, but an order was never entered designating him as such. The trial court conducted a hearing and subsequently entered an order designating Mr. Ruiz a sexual predator. The Florida Supreme Court recently held in State v. McKenzie that a trial court has jurisdiction to designate a defendant as a sexual predator under 775.21 even though the defendant was not designated as a sexual predator at the time of sentencing and has since completed the sentence. Mr. Ruiz argued that McKenzie did not apply here because re judicata 
barred the trial court from designating him a sexual predator. However, the third DCA disagreed. To successfully invoke a re judicata defense, a party must satisfy two prerequisites. First, a judgment on the merits must have been rendered in a former suit. And second, four identities must exist between the former suit and the suit in which re judicata is to be applied. First, identity in the thing sued for. Second, identity in the cause of action. Third, identity of the persons and parties to the actions. And fourth, identity of the quality or capacity of the persons for or against whom the claim is made. The third DCA found that re judicata was inapplicable to Mr. Ruiz's case because the state's motion was a continuation of the original litigation and was not new litigation in a new case. As the state sought the entry of an order declaring Mr. Ruiz a sexual predator in the original criminal case and not in a subsequent, subsequent action, the defense of re judicata does not apply. Case affirmed. Our seventh case today is Floyd v. State. This is a Florida 5th DCA case that was released October 21, 2022. And Floyd is another 3.850 ineffective assistance of counsel claim case out of Volusia County. Mr. Floyd was convicted at trial of sexual battery and lewd and lascivious molestation on children under 12 years of age. At trial, the state admitted a recorded interrogation of Mr. Floyd where he didn't make any admissions and the detectives made several comments vouching for the credibility of the child victims and implicitly suggesting the detectives' belief that Mr. Floyd was guilty. Mr. Floyd filed a 3.850 motion for post-conviction relief based on ineffective assistance of counsel, claiming that his trial counsel was ineffective for failing to object to the admission of the detective statements. The trial court summarily denied the motion, finding that the trial counsel made a strategic decision to keep some portions of Mr. Floyd's interrogation at the cost of not redacting other portions. Mr. Floyd then appealed to the 5th DCA. Generally, an evidentiary hearing is required before a trial court can conclude that a certain action or inaction by trial counsel was the result of a strategic decision. The 5th DCA held that it could not determine from the record that the trial counsel's decision not to object to the detective statements was strategic. The 5th also noted that although the interrogating detective statements can be understood by a jury to be techniques used to secure confessions, a witness's opinion as to the credibility, guilt, or innocence of the accused is generally inadmissible, and it is especially troublesome when a jury is repeatedly exposed to an interrogating officer's opinion regarding the guilt or innocence of the accused. And here, the trial court did not address the prejudice prong of Strickland. So the court reversed and remanded for the trial court to conduct an evidentiary hearing. Case reversed. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Jeremy Lesnetsky with Shorstein, Lesnetsky & Guyon. And this was another episode of the Site of the Crime podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the like button. And if you'd like to keep up to date on all the latest criminal law cases, subscribe to the Site of the Crime. And if you like the show, please review us. 
This will help your colleagues find us and they too can stay up to date. Each week, we'll release separate Florida and federal criminal law episodes with the previous week's court opinions. Look in the episode description for timestamps for each case in each jurisdiction. Thanks for joining us at the site of the crime.